Welcome back, warriors. Kwei Tansei Sego Ani Buju. I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our languages, cultures, traditions, laws, and governing practices. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And today's podcast slash YouTube video is a really special panel of chiefs from New Brunswick who will help give us some important context about what's been happening in New Brunswick lately. From police killings of First Nations people during the pandemic, the province's refusal to hold a full-blown inquiry specifically into anti-First Nation racism, the RCMP raid on First Nations-based businesses, and now the provinces notice that they're going to be cancelling the First Nation tax agreements. The relationship doesn't seem to be moving in the right direction. And I am so honoured to be able to introduce these chiefs, all of whom I have a great deal of respect for and who work very hard. They work for First Nations that represent both the Mi'kmaq and Wulistikwai nations in our territories. So first of all, let me introduce Sagum Chief Alan Poltis Jr. He has been the chief of St. Mary's First Nation in Fredericton since 2018. And he's someone that I've known for a really long time and admire for all of his work. Before that, he was a counselor for 13 years and has always been super involved at the community level. His First Nation in particular is part of the larger Wollastoquay Nation. Next, we have Chief Patricia Bernard, who's been the chief of Madawaska Maliseet First Nations since 2013. Before that, she served as counselor for six years, and she's also a lawyer. She was called to the bar in 2000. Her First Nation is also part of the larger Wollastoquay First Nation, and I have known Trish, Chief Bernard for a very long time. She's literally worked in everything. She's worked for government, she's worked on land claims, and she's one of those chiefs that reaches out and helps other people on the issues that they're working on. Next, we have Chief Sasha Labilwa, who has been the chief of Ugbaganjig, also known as Eel River Bar First Nation, since 2019. She had the privilege of becoming elected just before the pandemic. But before then, she also served as a counselor and has always worked on economic development. And I have to say proudly that she is my chief of my community. And our First Nation is part of the larger Mi'kmaq Nation. And of course, last but not least, we have Chief Bill Ward, who has served as the chief of Metabinagia, also known as Red Bank First Nation, since 2015. On Twitter, you'll note that he describes himself as not only the youngest chief in the Atlantic region, but the coolest. His First Nation is also part of the larger Mi'kmaq Nation. So we have an awesome representation today of North and South and Mi'kmaq and Maliseet and some of the best chiefs that I have ever had the pleasure of knowing and working with. Thank you all for giving your time to come on to this panel today and give us some updates about what's happening in New Brunswick. But before we jump into all of the issues that are happening, I'm wondering if each of you would like a little bit of time to introduce yourself the way that you like to, and perhaps some background on your First Nation. And um, perhaps we can start with you, Chief Bernard. Sure, I am a, a Wulustikwai uh, woman. I'm a mother, a grandmother, a wife, a daughter, and a sister. And I come from a small community in uh, Northwestern New Brunswick, which is on the boundary, uh, the international boundary with the state of Maine. And we're actually close to the border of Quebec as well. And our community is just under 600 members that are spread across uh, North America. Um, and we have about 200, um, 250 on reserve. So um, yeah, that's, that's where I'm from. That's fantastic. Well, let's just keep it within the Wollastoquay Nation. Uh, Chief Polches, maybe you could introduce yourself as well. Quay, Dungok Lukil, Nuttali with Sagum Polches, Chief Alan Polches from the Wollastoquay Territory. Um, St. Mary's First Nation, Sedunxis, is the name of my community. Um, my community is an urban community. We are located in um, the capital of New Brunswick 
which is Fredericton, New Brunswick. I always say that Fredericton is a suburb of St. Mary's First Nations. <laughs> and that's quite important when we're building relationships, for sure, because multiple levels of, uh, of relationships that we're building here. I have about 2,000 band members uh, that are uh, part of the uh, my band. I have 1,200 band members that are living in the community. I have a community that is uh, certainly, you know, focusing on economic development and, uh, you know, providing jobs. I am one of the largest employers on the Fredericton's North Side. I've got about over 400 employees in, in my community. And of course, I'm a proud father of, uh, of a six-year-old, uh, me, me and my partner. I am two-spirited and uh, I'm a big champion of Every Child Matters. And uh, certainly glad to be here today with you, Pam, uh, Willie for doing this. And uh, I'm excited to share with all of you in Turtle Island. Oh, fantastic. I love that. Fredericton being a suburb of St. Mary's. Yeah, of course. <laughs> They're all <laughs> suburbs of our territories. Okay, over to you, uh, Chief Labilwa. Quite, Pam. Well, Meliagwaj. Good afternoon. Deluizi Sasha Labilwa. Nina Sagamask. Delewi Ukpiganjik. Uh, my name is Sasha Labilwa. I'm the chief here, and I'm from Eel River Bar. Um, we're located in northern New Brunswick. We're also a small community. There's about 750 band members. About half of that reside on reserve. Um, we're fortunate to be um, located in front of one of the most beautiful bays of the world. Um, I, uh, I'm happy to um, be here on your podcast today. A um, little bit about myself, um, a mom of four boys, I'm a wife. I have three sisters, um, come from a strong line of um, Mi'kmaq women and um, that that's it really um well that's the ignin i'm happy to be here today thank you i'm so ha happy because we got to have you twice for those of you who don't know we uh, interviewed chief sasha uh, on her own specific podcast and hopefully i'll get to the rest of you two uh as well and last but not least the youngest and the coolest chief allegedly in new brunswick chief ward <laughs> Hi, I'm Chief Bill Ward of Metabinagia. Uh, the title of coolest chief was self-proclaimed. I, I, I did specify that in the bio, so any chief can uh, dispute that if they'd like. Uh, here in Metabinagia, uh, we have about 700 members on the cusp of 700 members with about 400, 450 uh, living here in the community. Um, Metabinagia, as many people know, is one of the oldest uh, continuously occupied uh, community or village in the entirety of New Brunswick, uh, history dating back here of our people over 3,000 years. And uh, I'm, I'm proud to be representing them uh, and, and the people here uh, today. Uh, I've been chief since uh, 2015. Uh, I was a councillor for a year before that. Uh, at that time I took over, I was 29. So it, it was it was quite young here in, uh, to, to do that here in the community for sure. And um, I'm just grateful for all the support that people have given me and the leadership, uh, they, they trusted my leadership over the past few years and hopefully to continue on. Um, I'm, I'm very happy to be here today to talk to everybody and uh, and share some thoughts and, and, and ideas. And uh, like I said, if anybody wants to try to take the title of coolest chief from me, then uh, come try it, so. <laughs> oh no! The gauntlet has been thrown down. That sounds like a challenge. <laughs> That's so awesome. Well, before we get into the issues, you know, there's a lot of non-native people that watch these videos or listen to the podcasts, and they don't really understand the kind of work that goes into being, you know, in a First Nation government, being chief in council. Um, and, and I was wondering if each one of you could just speak a little bit about, you know, what are some of the challenges, but also some of the rewarding parts about what it is you do as chief with your councils in terms of governing your territories. And, and, and maybe we'll just kind of go in the same order, Chief Bernard. 
Sure. Um, being a chief, it's a question I've gotten before, what are the challenges and what it's like? And I always like to say it's, it's such a, a wide variety of responsibility that uh, one day, in a day, you could be sitting and negotiating multi-million dollar deals. And later that day, you're dealing with somebody's cat pooping in, in somebody else's yard. So the variety and, and scope is so broad that, that it, it can be a, quite a challenge uh, to be able to, to deal with all of the issues in any particular given day, as well as, you know, you're supposed to be available all the time. And it's important that as a chief, you have to make a little bit of time for yourself to, to stay healed. And uh, because it can be quite, quite a stressful job at, at times. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's really been um, such a rewarding uh, experience for me, particularly in the governance uh, sector, because we have the um, ability to make real substantial, substantial change as leaders. And this is something that um, I've really prided myself on, particularly when it comes to governing, being fair, um, you know, t putting the community first and our nation first. And, and that's always uh, such a rewarding thing when you can get things done to be able to to um, succeed. Like, for example, uh, we've successfully gotten out of many sections of the Indian Act under the uh, Land Management Act and, and developed our own land code. And with that has been a great um, reward in being able to uh, control the land that we are on reserve. And, and that's that makes a big difference when it comes to, uh, you know, getting out the middleman, getting out the Canadian government in dealing with land use and protection, environment, and, and things of that nature. So it's been a great, it's a great challenging job, but at the same time, it can be quite stressful, long hours, and but it's worth it. Okay, well... Chief Pulches, because people really have no concept of what chiefs and counselors have to do in their communities. Yes, most certainly. You know, there's over 600 First Nation communities in Turtle Island here in our home uh, land uh, in Canada. And, you know, I applaud every single leader in the First Nation communities, first of all, that, you know, take up, take up the challenge itself, because it is challenging. But as I always say, Pam, there's always more successes than there is challenges. We as Indigenous people, you know, we have a long history of, uh, you know, residential school and Indian day school, and there's lots of trauma, uh, you know, inter intergenerational trauma that we've overcome. We're in the 21st century and, you know, our, we're, we're more, you know, our people are educated and they're creative and, you know, we've got lots of entrepreneurs and people just want to be successful and have healthy, have healthy lives and do good and, you know, ha have good morals and values. As a, as a, uh, as a leader of a community of my, of my size, certainly there, there's a number of challenges. As, uh, as we all know, you know, there's certainly the uh, one of the challenges is that everyone you, everyone wants a piece piece of the chief, right? And uh, when I when I speak of that, everyone wants your ear. And to be a good chief, you need to be a great listener because mm -hmm. that's what it's all about: is listening to the people because the people had faith in you and, and elected you into into those roles. But because of um, all the files that we are responsible for, it becomes very challenging because our funding arrangements that we have in place only allows us to, to hire so many staff. You know, where we are full government running, you know, a whole, whole, we're our own nation and we're trying to implement policies and procedures and, you know, we're, we're trying to implement good programs and services. And we've got lots of challenges when it, when it comes to those particular uh, avenues. You know, time management is something that as a, as a chief, you need to manage your time in dealing with your, you know, your community, dealing with the number of levels of government, dealing with your own family you know for me I've uh, certainly learned to or I've, I'm learning to balance as I mentioned into my introduction you know I'm a, I'm a dad and I've got a family of course and uh, you know of course it's uh, a larger community that you, you become responsible for 
you wear many hats, as as uh, as we all know. You know, one day, you know, you could be people are approaching you about housing issues, or you get inquiries about education, or you're dealing with uh, you know undesirables in the community. It's just it's just every single minute and hour it changes. And the thing is, being a First Nation leader, a chief, is that you're on twenty four seven. You know, when things happen in the community, you're the first to know, you're expected to deal with it, and, you know, everyone comes to you. So it's it's not like you get to, you know, uh, nine to five and you get to go home. You are constantly on. Uh, so those are uh, so so those are the, some of the challenges. But the rewards, of course, is you know having the passion. You know having the passion to help our people. When I say my people, of course, I'm going to be biased. I think you know I've got great. You know the uh, the my community is the best community. But collectively, you know, we, we're all in this together. You know what I'm so proud of. What I'm so proud to stand with my brothers and sisters. In the uh, in the Mi'kmaq and in, in the Mi'kmaq territory, our own territory, is that collectively we're standing together and we're trying to move big, big miles. I think that uh, the other the other reward is when you have a vision and you share the vision with your people and they're on side with your vision and you see it play out and you really see the rewards and and you know it just sort of like uh it, it makes you feel a little accomplished when you know your 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 community community is happy one of the best rewards is that when i go to homes and visit and stuff they're always rolling out food and believe it or not pam i love to eat uh, i love to eat because it certainly is a gift to my spirit in order to my spirit to be uh, to be uh to be nourished to help my people is where 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 I'm going on that. So here, but one of the rewards for me is being the voice, especially for those young people that don't have a voice yet. For those little kids that we need to speak for. You know, I always remind the leaders at the table, whether I'm dealing with First Nation leaders or, you know, the, the municipalities or the provincial or federal government, we are their voice. We are the ones that have to carry their voice and plan for the children that are yet unborn. So certainly, you know, it's uh, that's one of the best rewards in knowing that someday, you know, all the work that I'm doing will be left behind, and I'm and I'm you know paving that path for for my next successor, and of course all the children of the seven generations. Of course, and food. I mean, who who doesn't love going to community powwows and uh, community <laughs> events and meetings? I mean, I've even gone to referendums, and there's a full buffet at the referendum. So right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's so awesome. And you know, this conversation sounds just like the one that Chief Labilwa and I had. Because even though she got elected right before the pandemic, she was also about, um, you know, community and and a vision and being available for people. And that was one of the things that I like most about my chief, that she's available. She talks to people and she gives information. Yeah. So Chief Labilwa, what are some of the challenges and benefits of, of being a leader in your community? It's, yeah. it's hard to answer. Um, but I can certainly touch on some areas that have been challenging and the other two chiefs already touched on them. But one that stands out to me is like when I'm trying to balance um, our traditional ways with the Western ways. So when we talk about two-eyed seeing and it comes into, um, I'll say like uh, policy implementation here, we, we want to have strong governance. We want to move forward. But sometimes we have to take a little step back and, and look at um, things that affect us differently. Um, there's just so much to balance as a chief. We're, we're not like a typical um, municipality mayor and council where they get a certain budget from their taxation and they have to take care of their infrastructure. As chiefs of our communities, um, you know, if, if there's something that's needed um, around mental health, well, we, we need to figure out how to fix it. We need to identify the dollars to offer the programming that's needed. Um, our culture, our language, our education, we're all about um, building our nation. So we need our own institutions. We need our language. 
but we're always challenged on how to do this because we're we're limited on how we operate can we keep up with the speed of business like in the western world when we're limited to um you know the rules and regulations around atrs or land designation um there's just so many issues um you know and and to have that listening ear and have um you know compassion all the time um it just requires like a certain level of um patience and um calmness and overall uh trying to not have stress within your own life which is always a challenge when when you're dealing with so many issues um you know like there was mention of doing um business deals and having to worry about other things but um you know it it could be that um we just were told our tax agreements were uh, canceled, but an elder just passed away. So where does the focus go, right? It, it's always a, a balancing act. Um, some of the most rewarding things for me is um, when you put an idea or a vision together and you can bring it from conception and design to reality and just to see the satisfaction from community members to... Um, you know, to take a snapshot and then take it again one year later and be able to see the positive growth. You see tangible growth. Um, that's really rewarding. Things like that. Well, there's so much going on. I don't think people realize that First Nations do everything municipal governments, provincial governments and federal governments do with a mere fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percentage of the funds to do it. So Chief Ford, over to you. Uh, it's more or less echoing uh, a lot of uh, what the other chiefs had said. It, it, time management is huge. Um, balancing your work and personal life is, is huge. Um, I have two young daughters at home, um, but you know, the duties of the chief uh, seem to be 24 seven, like uh, Chief Allen had said, and that's, that's even more true now, thanks to the invention of uh, Facebook Messenger and uh, the ability for anybody to just add and send you a message at uh, whatever time works for them, I guess, and, and not so much for, for you. But if you want to stay engaged with your people and if you have that, uh, that genuine uh, compassion for, for your band members, then you know you will take that time to answer them or, or try to get back to them at some point. And, and, and a lot of the times you're sacrificing other time and that's either your personal time or your family time. But uh, if, if you truly do care, um, you know, it will bother you if you, if you don't answer them. So <laughs> there's that catch 22 um, of that all, you know, as a chief, uh, I, I think chief Trish said it perfect where you're dealing with something so uh, minor and then you're going to deal with something uh, quite large that can have huge impacts for the community. Um, you're, you're being stretched. That can all happen within the same morning, you know? So um it becomes difficult to uh, to be able to stay on all these different things and to prioritize what's what's more important or, or what isn't more important. But to, to to each person that's coming with for you with these requests, you know, that's important to them. So you got to be able to to see at their level and and try to uh, come down and um, I guess try to resolve the issue for them, which is sometimes is very challenging. Um, that that's just band members though and you know and some of the stuff that we have to do um i think everybody realizes that comes with the job and um as a chief you're as well you're, you're overseeing all the programming that's going on in the community you're, you're expected to have some higher level of understanding of all of the different departments and initiatives that are that the departments are working on so that community members can ask you a question uh and get answers to so um it takes a lot uh, a lot of time a lot of dedication to to, um, to to be a chief, I would say. Um, it's not for everybody. I, could, I can also say that, I, you know, over the years I've learned um, slowly through experience that, you know, it's hard to keep uh, everybody happy. You know, there's, for every decision that you make, uh, you're gonna make some people happy, but you may make people uh, angry or, or sad or, or something. So 
um, once you realize that, though, and you, you try to, I guess, minimize um, any damages or any any anything ill, even though there's no attention there, um, you know, you, you, get, you get a better sense of things, I guess, and um, trying to work with the people. But I, I know now that the biggest challenges where I, I see they're facing is uh, dealing with the government and dealing with the province and dealing with the federal government. Um, it seems as though they want to keep us in this box that they created. Uh, and and it's, it's very difficult to get out of because uh, back then when they made all these rules and kept us in these boxes, they never expected us to grow to the capacity we're at now. They never expected us to be become educated and to have the resources that we have now. And uh, so it's, it's a fight to get out of these constructs they made for us and they want to keep us here. But, you know, in order for us to grow... Um, and to do well and to prosper our communities, we have to break through. And uh, they definitely have been one of the biggest challenges I know for my community, for sure. Um, some of the, the rewarding parts, I guess, is, you know, I was a big advocate for youth when, when I had run. I was the youngest person running at the time when I was on council. And uh, growing up in the community, there was never really much for the youth to do. And uh, you see a lot of young folks go in, in my age group and a few people a little bit older and younger than me go to the wayside just because they had nothing to do, you know, there's only certain things to do. And that was party or, you know, stuff that wasn't healthy. And um, so I took it upon myself to, to really push uh, a lot of things for the youth and infrastructure, especially. Um, so it, what's rewarding is to see when you, when you invest that, that, that money into community infrastructure uh, for the youth, like we have a swimming, like a community swimming pool, uh, we revamped our baseball field and everything like that. So when you drive by those places and you see kids using it and, you know, and are there every day, um, that's rewarding to know that, you know, you're, you're making an impact on their life. You're giving them something to do. They're not staying idle. And um, it, it's really rewarding. And that's the kinds of things that I kind of want to see more of, I guess. And there's the intangible, too, is when you make different policy changes, uh, especially in regards to employment or work, and, and you start seeing the, the, the progress and the, the work ethic um, really increase um, the productivity of, of members and, and staff members really increase over the time of policy change. I mean, it's a hard thing to, uh, it's not one of those things you put out there and, you know, you get a big uh, hurrah from the community, uh, but when it works, uh, it, it's, it's, it's nice to see. So one of the things that I think people really don't appreciate is the role of chiefs and councils. They are they are elected to serve communities who have been devastated by colonization, not just the intergenerational trauma, but the ongoing um, racism in society, violence in society. And they, there's not really a full appreciation for the importance and focus that chiefs have to put on economic development because of the dispossession of our lands and resources. I mean, we would be all wealthy in our own territories. We wouldn't even be having these conversations had there been respect for treaty rights, Aboriginal rights, our title rights, all of the, our, you know, our ownership over these resources. And so we're, you know, First Nations are in a position where, of course, we have to do economic development and we try everything possible, both traditional that related to traditional practices and current practices. And, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to all of you today about some of the things that are impacting First Nations, particularly in New Brunswick. And so, you know, you had, and shockingly enough, during the pandemic, when most people were isolating at home and there was supposed to be less interaction, you had multiple police killings of First Nations people all across the country, but particularly in New Brunswick, in very short order over a short period of time. And the corresponding request by the chiefs to have a full blown, specific, inquiry, investigation into what happened. And I'm wondering, Chief Ward, if you can talk about like the request to have this and, and why this hasn't come to fruition. Obviously, it was quite disappointing to see them um, gut the motion and, and, and throw it to the wayside. And, you know, obviously they did not want to do it, regardless of the pressure that they had from opposition parties and other MLAs. Um, it's, it's hard to say what exactly, but I, I think there's a, a few things there. Um, you know, unfortunately the premier is a big part of that. Um, his, his, his claims that it may cost too much. There's, there's so many recommendations already on the table. 
Um, it, it may take long. Um, nothing can, you know, lots, lots of different excuses. But at the end of the day, um, to be frank, it, it having an uh, inquiry into um, anti-First Nations racism um, does not cater to his conservative base. You know, if you see a lot of the things that the premier is doing in the, in especially in the past few months when he gained his majority, um, he's not, he's not friendly to First Nations. Um, I, I've, I have the same feeling from the Francophones. Um, he, he caters to his base and that's the way he wants to, to keep it. Um, the thing about doing an inquiry into racism is that you're going to be looking at uh, a lot of different places that support him, like police um, and <laughs> in his own office as well. You know, it's hard to have those those conversations because they are going to be tough con uh, conversations and they are going to be opening a lot of eyes into it and uh, the treatment of our people. And uh, it, it may be disgusting to some people to see the way that we were treated or the way that we were worked around and and uh, not taken seriously. So um, here in, in my community, uh, especially after the killing of Rodney, um, there's definitely a, a huge distrust for police and, and the RCMP. Um, it's going to take a while for us to get over that. And uh, by by, we felt that by having this inquiry, it would start to begin to mend the relationship between us, the police, and, and the province. But obviously, they did not want to do it. And um, as their actions continue on here, and uh, since his, he gained his majority, uh, they're not making any attempt to build that relationship or mend that relationship. So uh, I'm not gonna hold my breath, that's for sure. Keeping on the theme of policing, uh, the RCMP has also recently engaged in what the Mi'kmaq chiefs have called an unlawful raid on a dispensary at my home community of Eel River First Nation. And I'm wondering, Chief Labilwa, if you can tell us a little bit about what happened and what are the core issues at play here? Sure. Um, so basically, um, there was an um, individually owned um, cannabis store here in Eel River Bar that was uh, raided by RCMP not that long ago. Um, the, the Mi'kmaq chiefs have termed this as an unlawful raid um, due to the fact that we had signed a BCR in support of each community to put in place their own rules and regulations around the sale of cannabis in their communities. So, okay, that happened. Um, but I, I need to go back a little bit before, before cannabis was legalized in Canada and in New Brunswick. Um, there's a duty to consult with us as First Nations. This has never happened. Um, in New Brunswick, the provincial government had put on several information sessions and invited First Nations in and called it engagement. Um, what they did was they provided a nice little slideshow on how legalization was to take place in New Brunswick, and there was really no place for the First Nations to participate in the retail industry. So the government said, sure, you can participate if you want to be a licensed producer. Well, you know, not every First Nations has tens of millions or even the, the amount of money required to start up, um, a, you know, medically licensed manufacturing plants such as the Xenobis, we, we don't have that. We don't have that capacity. Um, there's a couple hundred of these producers that are waiting for licensing. So it's just not that easy to participate in this industry. So right from the beginning, the province has been monopolizing this industry. Um, we as First Nations are going to exercise our right to self-government and we are going to sell cannabis in our communities. Several of us are doing it. Um, 
As far as Eel River Bar or Ukbigantik on April 20th, a um, few days ago, our council ratified bylaws that will support a community store and individual entrepreneurs who wish to be licensed to sell cannabis here in Eel River Bar. We're strengthening our position. Um, I guess uh, I, I like to focus on the picture forward because we need to be financially stable. Um, there's never enough money to fund all the programs that we need for our people. And um, it's, it's a way for us to support our communities. And that's so important because what you're talking about is our inherent sovereignty, power, authority, jurisdiction to govern ourselves according to our own laws in our own territories based on, you know, our own consent that we get from our own people to do these things. And so, you know, however it is that it's happening, um, you've, you've got governments historically all over the country who, you know, they, they don't want you to engage in your own traditional practices. There's a whole bunch of regulations. You think about all the court cases around things like hunting and fishing, but they don't want you to engage in modern economies because then you know you're taking a piece of what they consider to be their pie there's they don't carve out a space for what is technically in the maritimes it's all of our territory and it's all of our resources and i'm wondering chief bernard if you can talk a little bit about you know that issue um around the the failure to share our own lands and resources uh in a fair way recognizing that we're in fact the owners Yes, exactly. And, 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 and that's really, this, this goes back historically, because I mean, if you go back to when Canada became a country and, and, and the division of responsibilities between the federal government and the provincial government, forestry, uh, these types of things were considered provincial. And Indians and lands reserved for Indians were federal. So historically, New Brunswick has always kind of ignored First Nations based on that principle in the Constitution that, hey, Indians, that's the fed that's a federal responsibility. Forestry is provincial. Therefore, First Nations don't have access to forestry um, without, without our permission, the provincial permission, so to speak. And this has always been a bit, is, has been flawed because we go back historically to the peace and friendship treaties where we've never ceded this territory. We've never ceded this land. So everything upon it is ultimately ours. Um, and, and we ultimately have the title and, and access to those resources, despite whatever the constitution says with respect to the division of responsibility. So we've, historically been denied access to those industries like forestry, mining, uh, fisheries has always been a little bit um, of, a, of a, an anomaly because the federal fisheries is, is along the lines of, of the federal responsibility with respect to commercial fisheries, but then inland water has always been a bit of, there's an overlap. So all of these these things where we've had access to be able to to participate in a, in and become partners has always been denied by particularly by the province. Now, as you know, um, last fall the uh, the Woolistic Way came together and and uh, started a title claim, and that is going to have huge ramifications for the province when it comes to sharing these natural resources that. We have a right to. We have we have we have title and we have Aboriginal rights. And we have treaty rights, and these have constantly and continuously been denied and ignored by the province. So, so really, this has been a huge concern and an issue for us because we don't have an access to that revenue source to be self-governing. We don't want to rely on the federal government or the provincial government. We just want what's rightfully ours to be able to access. Um, and, and earn a, a livelihood off of it and live a good standard of living. We, we don't intend to be billionaires like, like the Irvings. We, tend to, we want to live in a great standard of living. Like, and and that's, just, that's not too much to ask for. So, so yeah, so it's, it's uh, you know, being denied these, this, these um, access to these resources is really created a situation for us to be 
to be creative and 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 these tax agreements that that uh, recently have been um, given notice to cancel have, have been an, a means to sort of do that and and that's it's just too bad that this is this has had to happen but like I say um, you know we have access to we have a right to those resources and I think we're going to uh, to see that unfold much more clear in the future. And I'm, I'm so glad you raised that because, you you know, you hear uninformed commentary in the media or even in society, you know, around stop asking for handouts. And, you know, people need to be reminded, um, we're just asking for a small part of our land's resources and, and all of the wealth that's collected on our land. So even if we only had the tiniest fraction of all of the fees, fines, permits, you know, money that's being made, royalties that are being made, like you name it. There's billions and trillions of dollars being made all over Canada that First Nations don't have access to, but it's all on our territories. I think people need to remember that and, you know, come to the table because First Nations have always said, look, we just want to come to the table in a good way uh, in respect of the treaties because we didn't surrender or cede anything, by the way. And, you know, it would serve New Brunswick well to remember it's all unceded territory and things like comprehensive land claims um, hopefully will address that. This also goes to the issue of all of the ways in which you know, we provide funding to our communities and those tax agreements that have recently got media attention uh, are something that not everybody understands. And I'm wondering, Chief Poltus, if you can just explain a little bit about what are those tax agreements and then what happened? Why did the province give notice that they're pulling out? Well, first of all, I'd like to look at them as revenue sharing, because ultimately that's what it is. Um, you know, there's some history here in New Brunswick on the uh, on the tax agreement that the government likes to uh, use their terminology, but I'll refer to it as a, a revenue sharing agreement. Um, you know, back in uh, 2017, uh, the, uh, the the Woolastigway Chiefs, of course, uh, the Woolastigway Chiefs uh, renegotiated the um, the tax agreement for our communities where we would collect, all the communities would collect uh, tax being paid um, uh, on goods sold in the community, and then we would remit those taxes back to the province of New Brunswick, where they then would take 95% of that and return it back to the community, and they would keep 5%. It's a whole system of being, of being in control of our resources, again. And this is where, you know, we need to um, be creative and how we do that moving forward. Because as Chief Trish mentioned, you know, they certainly affect uh, on a number of levels, um, on a number of levels in terms of uh, we use those funds to use for shortfalls in our programs and services. So, you know, every, the agreement was for 10 years. So up to the fifth year, it was then there was a clause, a caveat in there that the government can reopen it to renegotiate or the First Nations could, or it could be left alone and then, of course, can fulfill its, uh, fulfill its term. Um, well, recently there was a, um, the Wollastigway Chiefs had challenged the province of New Brunswick on a carbon tax fuel where they weren't going to be willing to share that wasn't originally in the agreement, and we said it needs to be in the agreement because of uh, new because of the the uh, fuel tax that is coming down from the federal government. So we challenged the province government because they said no, they weren't going to uh, to include that, and we won. We you know the, the the judge sided with us, and then of course you know we went back to the table. So I think this is what has sparked. Uh, you know, the premier to um, look at those uh, revenue sharing or tax agreements and uh, and announce that he's going to cancel them. But, uh, you know, there, there is an agreement, there's clauses there that state that, you know, he can't look at them, either party can't look at them until January 2022. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're challenging that situation at the moment. But if I can share with all of your viewers, Pam, that, you know, the important thing is, you know, is fact checking, 
check the facts that you know what the, what the government or what the premier is stating in his press releases or his briefings that he's given live you know some of the information is 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 not correct we need to you know we as indigenous leaders are uh, ensuring that uh, canadians are getting the uh, the correct narrative and you know really the uh, bottom line on unfortunate situation where you know we're taking we're trying to do uh you know two steps uh, two step every time we get two steps ahead we always get three steps back per se right so because there really was a problematic narrative that was coming directly from the province um they were saying things like you know operating first nation businesses according to your own laws or resource revenue share or revenue sharing agreements that these are unfair uh, to uh, other businesses which is really just a dog whistle for we don't want to respect your basic rights which we only recognize in the most limited way um and uh, i've always been concerned about the kind of misinformation that this it miseducates the public. And then so if someone's watching mainstream media and they hear these things, then they're like, well, you know, if our government's saying it, it must be true, that's unfair. Well, I don't want those First Nations doing these things without really understanding any of the facts. And so you raise a really important point, you know, around the facts uh, of this and the, the impact that it would have. Well, the, the, the issue is talking about tax versus revenue sharing is because the the terminology that the government wants to uh, wants to use is is using that in a term of how all new brunswickers are canadians saying well they don't pay taxes you know and yes we do i'm going to clarify we pay taxes you know uh, my community pays tons of taxes and and contributes tens of millions of dollars to the economy as I was mentioning into my opening, you know, I, I'm in an urban setting. Fredericton is in my backyard. You know, I build, we, we, we run stores, we have all kinds of operations where we're providing and purchasing items from our non-Indigenous friends. So revenue sharing, where people may have, uh, you know, it has a different tone to it. And, you know, we're going back to, you know, we're students of the lands and, you know, our people were here first. So we need to share those revenues. So I think their tactics on calling it a tax, you know, of course, it has a negative tone to it. There's always those stereotypes. First of all, we actually have protected rights around treaties, customs, duties, you know, not just at the border, but under the Indian Act. So even the recognition of those rights shouldn't be considered a negative thing. But, you know, your point around resource revenue sharing is 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 also important because we don't even get a, a fraction, like not even a fraction of a percent of the wealth in this territory. The, th the thing about the Higgs and the things that he's saying um you know, in regards to revenue sharing across Canada, um, every province has something uh, that they're sharing with the First Nations or, or, or at least trying to when it comes to resources or, or gaming or, or what have you. But, you know, here in New Brunswick, they decide to share um, the tax. So uh, to say that a revenue sharing agreement is uh, uh, unique or, 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 or just unique or to New Brunswick, that's it's it's untrue, you know other other provinces are doing it but you know he did spread a lot of misinformation on on the tax agreements and and calling them unfair uh unfair to who you know has he come to our communities and seen our communities and see some of the conditions that our people have to live in you know who who is it unfair to you can't mention first nations and say that we get uh an unfair advantage over anybody else and you know a lot of these things that he's brought up are addressed right in the tax agreements when it comes to competition and prices pricing it's all in the agreements that uh, we can't compete with um, so-and-so. We can't lower our price uh, of gas or, or cigarettes or anything else like that, um, especially in regards to gas, uh, whoever's within the close proximity to us. So what is true and fair competition? You know, the best we can do is match. Um, he also mentioned that taxes, uh, when people come to the First Nations and First Nation businesses and spend their money, that that business is... Uh, not collecting uh, provincial tax or or people aren't paying provincial taxes it's, it's untrue they're still paying the tax and um, 
that money gets sent to the province and then the province sends it back to the band, not to the business. They send it back to the band. So to say that there's some sort of unfair advantage is just absurd. And if he had read the, the agreements himself, he would have first realized that, you know, all the, all the issues he had in 2014 leading into now have been addressed in the 2017 agreement. And, um, you know, even the, the simplest thing on the, on the cancellation of the five-year renewal on the new agreements, he would have known that that can't be uh, truly canceled until 2023. So I think, uh, I think Higgs uh, reacted uh, emotionally uh, and, and vindictively when they had lost the carbon tax um, case to, to the Maliseet and his, his punishment was to, to take these away. So um, it's unfortunate. Uh, he does not want to, um, I guess, read the agreements or learn of why they're around and and the benefits that has to all the communities and especially in the, some of our, our communities are, are around small towns like Miramichi here uh, and in Edmondson up in the northwestern uh, part of the province you know they really rely on the First Nations communities to keep them afloat and uh, economically so there can be a definitely some um, um, repercussions for canceling these that would that would hurt you know all these other places and communities that, that have nothing to do with this. So um, it, it's just very, very uh, unsettling to see the Premier act in such a manner. Yeah, I, I think just to echo uh, what Chief Ward is saying, it, when, he, when the Premier is saying that these agreements are unfair, that could be nothing further from the truth because, in fact, they were created to create fairness because... First Nations are not on provincial land. We are in fe on federal land, the reserves. And what there's nothing to stop us from creating our own taxation regime, which could be instead of a 15% HST, what if we decide to make a First Nations tax, goods and services tax of 10%? Well, the local businesses would be livid if this happened because that would create an unfair advantage. Of, and so the whole purpose of these agreements were to create a level of fairness for the consumer to not have um, a place to go where they could get cheaper goods because the tax is cheaper there. And, 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 and that is really where the problem lies because the government in the 1990s when these, when these tax agreements were created had no idea that we would be so uh, entrepreneurial and, and push and take advantage of these agreements to our benefit to because we don't have access to forestry and we don't have access to mining or other natural resources. So let's let's maximize what, what we've agreed to. And, and, and in fact, um, because our community is, is surrounded by a municipality as well as, as uh, St. Mary's, the city loves us because we grow the economy here and they want to make sure that the businesses within the city of Edmondson are at a pl fair playing, uh, on a fair playing field as those businesses that are on the First Nation. Because if these tax agreements go away and we do create our own regime, there's nothing guaranteeing that we're going to decide to charge 15%. We could charge less. And that's going to cause this whole problem to raise its head again that happened in the 90s where people were coming onto reserve and purchasing goods completely tax-free. Like I think uh, in addition to talking about these um, tax agreements or I'll say revenue sharing agreements not being fair, our premier used the word that they weren't sustainable for the province. But the irony here is that we're generating economic development, we're, we're generating revenues for ourselves and in return um, generating this tax revenue in hopes that, well, I guess for to make ourselves sustainable, to make ourselves financially stable. And then in turn, that's not sustainable to who? I mean, basically before we had these agreements in place when we weren't charging tax, there was zero dollars going back to the province. Now from the taxes we're generating, we're making a lot of money that's going back to the province and they're so kind to give us back some of it. So 
it's just it's just so ironic to 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 say it's not sustainable. Um, that revenue wasn't there before. It's ours. And, and We're sharing it. They're sharing it. We're trying to make ourselves sustainable, yes. but that's not sustainable to our premier. So the only conclusion that I have in this statement is, well, what would be sustainable for him is that we all just fail. And, um, you know, we're at those high levels of poverty and we, we don't advance anywhere. It's an awful conclusion. It is. And I just want to state, you know, it's, it's so upsetting that we as Indigenous people, that we are, well, this is our territory, they should be coming to us. We shouldn't have to, you know, to, to bow down to what they're telling us. And we're a sovereign nation. So we need to start doing what is good for our people and start taking control, you know, and, and building our building our governments and building in our relationships with with one another. You know, a, a prime example, you know, what upsets me the most is that our our children, every child that goes to public school, we the First Nation have to pay. This coming fall, it's going to be up to fourteen thousand dollars a child. Now, a regular New Brunswicker that, that lives outside of the community, they don't have to pay, but First Nations do. You know, so, you know, we send all of our kids to school. We have to send them, you know, pay for these kids to go to. And then all we hear is discrimination into the school system because the school system is failing our kids. But yet we are paying. It's like saying we might as well send all of our kids to a private school or build our own Wollaston Way or Mi'kmaq um, high school and, and get all the kids in there together. That's what sort of frustrates me. Mm -hmm. It's all of the, as I spoke about earlier, which the public doesn't know, it's all about funding the shortfalls of our programs and services. How the big one, as, as Chief uh, Ward has mentioned, you know, we struggle, you know, First Nation people. One of the, one of the things is, is that, you know, uh, poverty, for example, you know, they say First Nations are the largest poverty in the, you know, in this, in this country, in this province. We're trying to rectify that by putting our people to work. The people want to work because they've got a passion for the community. They want to see the success of the community. They want to see, you know, it, it, it warms my heart when I when I look out my window and I see someone driving around the community with a brand new vehicle. They're doing well and good for them because you know what? Doing well is great for your mental health. And when you've got great, you know, when people are uh, focusing on their mental health and doing well, then you've got, you know, really good successes coming out of that. And, you know, this is an unfortunate situation where, the, where, where we have a premier in the middle of a pandemic that has added more stress onto our, go our governing bodies in our community. When uh, when Sasha, Chief Sasha was speaking and about uh, the, the revenue sharing and that this is ours and we're sort of sharing with the province, it's sort of like I have a soda pop in my hand and I say to you, Pam, can you hold this? Go ahead and take a sip and then uh, give it back to me. That's exactly what it is. But you, what, what the premier's done is basically say, well, this pop is mine now. It's. It was never. It was never the province's revenue to keep. It was based on keeping everything uh, equalized on and off reserve, and and administering and administering it in a fair, equal manner. But you're just administering it for us for a slight fee and giving it back to us. Doesn't make it yours. I I think people are going to learn a lot from this from this conversation um, but and I know as, as we wrap up I the number one question people are going to have is where do we go collectively as Mi'kmaq and Willistiquay First Nations from here what would you like to see in the future coming from the province I think um, the, the first thing that has to happen is the province has to take a step back and realize they acted too quickly they acted without full knowledge of the actual agreements. And and also, you know, it's pretty disturbing to know that the Mi'kmaq have been trying to renegotiate their agreements, uh, sort of what the Willistic Way have done, and they've just basically been ignored. So that, you know, if you, you, everyone should be treated equally and fairly and have the same access, the same agreement, because the Mi'kmaq agreements have a termination of only three months. 
how do you renegotiate that um, when you're you have a deadline? It's that is 100% trying to negotiate with a gun to your head, and and that creates a bit of panic. And I'm sure for some of these communities that uh, say, "Whoa, if you're going to do this, we're going to be affected." These communities have investments, payments, and now they're just saying, "Up." Oh, Come and deal with us. Come and talk to us. Otherwise, it'll be pulled. That's not right. That is unconscionable, in my view, because you can't do that. At least in the new agreements, there's 12 months notice. But even that, that requires planning. And it, what happens if we can't come to an, an agreement? They never, the provinces in the past denied dispute resolution. It's their way or the highway. So how do you negotiate in that manner? It's just not appropriate. It's not right. The government is asking us to come forward with our agreements and to open them up and to discuss them. Well, you know what? If um, they're not opening up their files when it comes to the cannabis file, or of course the selling of alcohol in our in, in our stores, you know, there's specific uh, companies in this province that are, you know, belittling or of course going after the small folk and, and taking those licenses away. You know, we can we can do very we're doing very successful in, in our community when it comes to the cannabis file because you know going back to the police and uh, we as a first nation in the, in the city of Fredericton has a uh, of course a unique uh, policing agreement with the city of Fredericton. So what that happens is create some gray areas between federal jurisdiction and of course uh, municipalities. So you know we have our challenges there. But I just wanted to talk about the licensing that uh, you know we don't have access to. I always usually end off in, in optimism and say, um, you know, for anyone watching today or for the viewers, um, you know, become an ally, get educated a little bit, share the word, um, speak out, support us. We're, we're not just a First Nation looking for handouts. We're... You know, we we participate in the economy. We're us as an Eel River Bar in the northern New Brunswick area. Um, we have a high percentage of our children who attend the local schools. Um, you know, let's say if the Minor Hockey Association didn't have the numbers just from Eel River Bar alone, I have no doubt that that there wouldn't be minor hockey in Dalhousie this year. We contribute to our local arena. We contribute to the Recreaplex. We contribute to breakfast programs, um, just the hot lunches at school. We're the biggest um, purchaser of these lunches. If it wasn't for us, you know, it wouldn't be feasible. There would be no lunches for anybody. Um, you know, we're, we're an equal player in this economy. And in New Brunswick, as a leader, I do not feel equal. I do not feel heard. Um, the First Nations, it, it just that recognition, you know, that friendly partnership. Well, Chief Ward, we'll, we'll end off with you. What should the province be doing right now? The province should be preparing... Um something at least uh, because in recent cbc interviews higgs has mentioned that they don't they haven't a plan or anything in place yet to even uh discuss what is going to happen after the taxation agreements uh, expire or what or what kind of um form that would take so and he wants us to come to the table but um i'm 100 percent confident that they already have something predetermined and are going to throw it at us um and and saying that, you know, this is it or the highway, um, that's the nature of, of this province and the everything that we've been dealing with them about, uh, this is how they approach things. So um, us, some, of us, some of us here in the Mi'kmaq communities have uh, 90 days to come up with some sort of plan or to approach the premier. Um, you know, 90 days is not enough, um, especially for something this this big and the, the, the large impact it's going to have on the, on the communities and the undue hardship we're all going to experience. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of things are on the table for us right now from, from litigation to uh, like, I, I love what uh, Chief Trish says about uh, enforcing our own taxation regimes. Um, there's a lot of different areas too that are unresolved with the province in forestry, uh, mining, fishing, hunting. There's, there's a lot of things there that the government didn't want to talk about in the past and they, but they did not want to litigate that as well. 
Um, so, you know, a lot of these things, I don't think Premier Higgs has looked back and, and looked at, researched or, or understood these things that were left uh, in the past, but were not resolved. So um, I think that the, go the government should uh, really, you know, prepare themselves, take a step back and, and come in good faith or it can open up a lot of doors uh, for other areas that, that may be difficult for them. So. I think divide and conquer is what the government is trying to do. And, mm -hmm. you know, and you speaking of, you know, just uh, Chief Ward, and I'm thinking, you know, there's lots of young leaders today. And we look at the political parties on all spectrums and no offense, you know, I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to be a senior Monday, but come on now, we need younger people, fresh minds and to be in, in, in the times. If I can just may also add, if the government's looking for money, maybe they need to reevaluate the bilingualism in the province of New Brunswick. We're the only province in Canada that is bilingual and they spend $100 million a year, you know, on bilingualism in this province. So if they're looking for money, maybe, you know, they should look at that file as well. I'm just trying to give some tips for the premier. So maybe you can look at these coffers there. What I'm hoping is that this session that we had here today will help educate not just Canadians in general, New Brunswickers in particular, help dispel all those myths and misinformation, but also hopefully the Premier and his government will actually hear from First Nation chiefs who are acting in good faith, always trying to work together in this treaty relationship helping the people on the ground because of all of the poverty, all of the dispossession, all of the essentially legal blockades out of these industries um, that, that have kept us from moving forward. So I think what you've done here today will help really send those strong messages. Walaliag, Waliwan, thank you, merci, all the chiefs for coming here today and, and helping to educate because this is really about well-being for everybody, uh, you know, First Nations as well as New Brunswickers. And, and I'll make sure to post links to all of your communities, your social media handles, some of the articles that have been written about this. And of course, we will follow it and make sure that we continue all collectively to put pressure on the province. And thank you to all of the podcast listeners, YouTube viewers, for tuning into the Warrior Life podcast um, and, and taking part, because this is about education for action. Remember, this is never just about information. You Now that you know better, you all have an obligation to make sure that First Nations rights are respected, basic human rights, even to be able to enjoy our own uh, lands and resources. So share this podcast, share the video, help spread the word and pressure the Premier of New Brunswick to do what's right and come to the table in a good way, not a predetermined way, and hear what the Chiefs have to say about all of our communities. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. I, I really can't thank you enough. Believe in. Believe in. Thank you. Thanks. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Malalia.